Hello and welcome to our last week of the Staff's Tackle Fair Quality, a Black Lives Matter and football movement funded by FAIR. Today we had a new tactical formation, our solo dolo, so we're missing our usual co-host in Lita. But I was joined by a very inspiring guest, Yosa Koshe, qualified and award-winning journalist for publications such as Rugby 365 and the Daily Dispatch. And he's a real interesting journalist because I feel he has a niche in the stories he finds. He's a very on-the-ground um, journalist who, who has quality stories. And we discussed just how the media has a role to play in the fight for equality and as they are a mouthpiece for the fans and people alike who enjoy the sports that we love. So I hope you guys enjoy listening and thank you. Okay, so obviously I know uh, a little bit about your your background. Um, yeah, yeah. But just to paint a picture of it, like uh, I remember sort of seeing your earlier work per se of you interviewing Tando and Tini. I think you were still at Saabon at that time. Um, yeah, so just early, early in your days, um, was sport always sort of in your blood, uh, in your interests, etc.? Um, yeah, definitely. I, I grew up watching watching soccer was one of the first sports I ever watched as a kid. Um, that encouraged me to not only go outside and kick a ball, but I used to take what I saw on the TV screen and create a whole fictional world of soccer players and write about them in any type of book I could find lying around at home. So yeah, sport has always been a passion of mine, and you could also say writing has always been there. But I only realized. Um, the writing at a later stage when people, uh, i.e. my grandmother, um, I actually saw one of my writings as a kid, very young, and she was like, she couldn't believe a kid at such a young age could write something that makes so much sense. And even yeah. then, for me, it didn't <laughs> really make, well, I didn't make much of it then, but yeah, you can say sport has always been a part of me. Yeah. And sort of the journalism part, because I, I yeah. always think it's a bit interesting in high school, there's never really, or from what I see, that pathway, it's never really like made it made known to you that this is what you've got to do um, to 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 be a journalist. Like you know, the sciences, the biology. You know, okay, if I want to go in this career path, I need to do this business. I need to do this, but journalism's not that much. So, was that always your goal to you know go into that, or was it sort of just you know at, at a later stage, like maybe? Uh, matric or grade 11 at 17, 18? Yeah, definitely at a later stage, you know. Um, funny enough, someone asked me this just last week, I think on Thursday, and it was the first time I actually really thought about how I never really grew up saying I want to be a journalist. Um, I do have flashes of seeing my father reading the dispatch and, and him telling me why he read the dispatch and that's why I'm quite interested, but I never said I want to be a journalist and write like the people on the dispatch. I think like any other kid playing soccer in primary school, you have those dreams of watching soccer, you want to be a footballer, but you go to a school that doesn't have soccer at a high school level, so automatically that just goes away. Yeah. And then, you know, I think coupled with um, some of the compliments I've got from English teachers and history teachers uh, and at a later stage in my, in my high school career, and then seeing, you know, the requirements of what journalism is about, it sort of clicked, maybe great living, that I could actually write about my interest in sports, you know, and it all yeah. came together. In like, yeah. yeah, and you went to Rhodes after that to study journalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, during... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 I, was, I, I thought that was a question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, during that time, um, you know, as you're getting closer to actually, you know, becoming a journalist, what yes. sort of pathways did you see? Because, I mean, just like in any sports, for a black person sometimes the pathway is not always there or if it's there you got to really break the door down um did you see yeah. a clear pathway for yourself coming through um i never really thought that far to be honest with you for me it's always been a matter of you know one day at a time one step at a time yeah when i remember when i was in my first year i went through my whole first year not taking up any extramural type of journalism outside class and then that was like one of the things I said to myself, okay, the next year I need to get into that space. But luckily what launched as a bit of a, an inverted commas frenzy about my writing was at the end of my first year, I got published by the Daily Dispatch. So that's, that's, that's the moment when everybody was like, nah, this guy's not just studying, he's actually good. So that's yeah. the first ever published article at the premier newspaper publication in my province. And it was a big deal for everybody and for me too at the same time. But I think what really launched my, my sports journalism was joining a publication called Crocus Mail Sport in Gramsdown, which is Gramsdown's newspaper, oldest independent newspaper in the country. Um, and that's where everything started to unfold for me. I got a, a sports editor that backed me all the way, even through hardships. You know, he believed in me and um, I produced the goods for him as well. And that's been... I won an award in 2015, my first year at the publication, Sports Writer of the Year. Um, and that's where everything sort of started to, to take hold from, from there, yeah. Yeah. And look, obviously, I'm sure there's a lot of young sports journalism journalists probably going to be listening and saying it's not true. But I, I don't really see that many young ones. And I say that many young ones, I mean in these publications you know the big ones um yeah. it's mostly you know the older statesmen and just you know i've been in a couple of stadiums and you know you go into the press room and the press are you know older guys and and women so <laughs> so do you think there is enough like young journalists in those spaces the higher spaces to you know portray that the perspective of south africa because most of the times what the fans and what the people are asking is not really reflected yeah. by what's being asked to the organizations and clubs. hundred um, percent. I don't think, I don't think uh, there are enough young faces, enough young energy in newsroom. Um, and I remember as well, I was in my third year of journalism. I've got the honor of, public, of um, covering a lot of super rugby games uh, for growth cards. And I wasn't, uh, the press room type of thing, and myself and Leonard is also a, a, a sports journalist on the rise. We were the only young journalists there, and we were like, "Wow, okay." We felt so young, you know, but we held yeah. our own. So that was a moment for me to say, "Why don't more publications just back young journalists, you know, who have the ability, who can produce the goods, and just give them a chance?" And like yeah. you said, it's, it's really a huge disparity between myself at 25 years old and then you see the next black journalist from the Eastern Cape who's had a huge publication and is well within his 30s, you know? So yeah. there's a huge gap and I don't think they're doing enough. And one of the things I've noticed coming out of universities is 
how ridiculous some of the criteria is. For example, you want someone to go into a junior position with already five years of experience. Um, So I think for me, that sort of drives people away and they also just feel like, okay, I can never get into this industry. And then they change paths. So I think there isn't enough and there's a lot that can be done to make, to accommodate more young minds into journalism, including changing the criteria of it and also making it seem as if it's a space that's acceptable for young minds to come in and change and innovate because, you know, the world is moving, the way we consume youth is moving, you know? And yeah. the people that have the knowledge of how things are going are the younger ones, you know? So a lot can be done and just isn't at the moment here. Yeah, and just on the, the, the flip side of, of the coin there, and yeah. don't you think a lot of journalists, because I, I know freelancing can be, you know, difficult, and you sort of mm-hmm. have to reach out to a lot of people. But I think, you know, there is an element of, especially for, for black people in marginalized communities of, you know, not feeling worthy to reach out to these people and, you know, get out. Because I know there is a lot of people who would like to help younger people, but, you know, it's that yeah. thing of, you know, I don't want to reach out. It's probably not going to want to help me. And sometimes what I've like heard and listened to recently is just, you know, t- backing yourself and really just going out there and saying, Hey, um, I want to shadow you or please mentor me, or I can write this for you. Tell me what you think. If you want to publish it, that's okay. Do you think enough younger journalists do that? Um, I honestly can't speak too much about the other people, you know? Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you from like my experiences, I remember first, my first year out of university was kind of a depressing one because I used to be that person reaching out, you know? And yeah. um, I thought I had enough material to show someone that there is promise, you know? But it's always the cold shoulder that sort yeah. of makes you, um, that deters you. And I don't think a lot of people are availing themselves um, to, to young journalists because I think what I've noticed is it's so hard to get into the industry and we all basically fighting for the same position, even if you're 30 years old or you're fresh out of university. Yeah. So maybe it's a matter of, okay, if I help this kid in, sooner or later the is going to take my position. You know what yeah. I'm saying? That, and there's a lot of that. Even when I got into the, the newsroom for the first time, 2014, when I shadowed at, at the Daily Dispatch, I will never forget how unwelcoming the space was for like the first two days from certain people, you know? It mm. always felt as if every time I wanted to suggest something, they were like, no, thank you, we've got this covered. It always yeah. felt a sense of a threat, you know? So maybe I think is maybe the young black journalists or just journalists in general have tried to reach out and getting the cold shoulder of, um, no, I uh, can't help you at the moment. I'm also looking on two, uh, we've got enough stuff, or three, we'll tell you when we've got, we need yeah. something and that never comes through they never come back to you um i think that deters a lot of young journalists but just on that my advice is for them is just to start their own thing um give give that content you would give to the huge publications give it a chance on your own platform create your own audience make them want you to get them that content make them come to you you know build your own audience and then i think that's the only way to beat the whole system you know, because yeah. sometimes it feels like they know who they want, you know, and yeah. it doesn't matter how many chances, I mean, it doesn't matter how many times you try to reach out to them, you just can't win because they know who they've got those places for, you know, it's just a feeling, I'm not saying that's the case, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, but I think, <laughs> yeah. I think you're 100% correct, because I think actually that's something 
you've done well, um, you know, recently of building your own community around that and leveraging, because when you go out, you can leverage that community and say, hey, I'm bringing what a thousand, two thousand readers, listeners. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm valuable. You should want me. And I definitely think, I think a lot of young, I wouldn't say journalists, but just a lot of young people are doing that. They're just, you know, starting their own thing, whether it's like serious writing or just reporting, writing what they think on games, posting voice notes on Twitter, um, you know, analyzing the game. So I definitely think South Africans are really, you know, putting their, um, their destiny in their own hands in that aspect. And that's, and that's lovely to see. I mean, if they can find ways to monetize that, then they won't feel so much pressure to want to be a part of a huge publication. But maybe it's just the whole prestige of saying you, you're writing for a particular big name, you know. Um, but, you know, it's just tough to sometimes get into those type of publications. But look, if, if people are being innovative, doing their own thing, um, they can only benefit them at the end of the day. And someone sooner or later will pick it up and back them, hopefully. You know, and like you say, there's huge. There's a huge amount of, of podcasts started by young people. I mean, like yours as well, um, yeah. and people just doing their own thing. You know, so there's plenty of positive there, or just to counter the whole trying to get into the system thing, which doesn't always work in people's favor. Yeah, and just okay. Moving on to this, um, the narrative surrounding racism and and sort of the Black Lives Matter movement in sport. And yeah. I mentioned before about, you know, the demographic of journalists in South Africa, the majority of them are older men and they do garner the, the most eyes and minds. And, you know, I ask, this is not what South Africans think, or let's say the majority of South Africans think when you read about, what was written about Lungi during the Black Lives Matter process, the number of black coaches coaching in Super Rugby teams, the number of black players, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, um, where some of the teams fielded really a low amount of black players. And I read a recent article on, I think it was on AfriForum about Russell Domingo and, and Zondo about how they did not deserve to to be where they where they were and yeah you know and that's why you know i look at journalists uh, sometimes and be like you guys play such a pivotal role in society and you know shaping the narrative on players on coaches on teams and i don't think south africa sometimes does that correctly yeah yeah um i think for me especially because what you're saying is 100% correct. And I usually say this to a lot of people, that journalism is the mouthpiece for a system. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And if you're looking at some of, uh, I, I don't want to like name drop or anything like that, but if you're looking at certain publications, um, they're owned by people who have ties to certain teams, you know, in a certain sport. Um, so they they are, they can be used as a narrative as, as a mouthpiece to take out a particular narrative for the whole country. For instance, I read an article earlier this year that that said Wandisilis Milani out of all of the centers at the Lions is the best equipped to move to fullback. You know, where areas as a player like Fiefel Yun who 
is a fullback, a fullback who just yeah. shifted into center, you know, um, is not all of a sudden thought of going back to his original position. You want to take someone who's, who's been there playing that position to fullback. And that sort of goes back to a narrative where black players are not only reserved to play a certain position and certain mm. demographics are, are required to play, you know, tight positions and more disciplined positions. It's like they're saying, one decision in you can't play um, center. You know what I'm saying? He's yeah. more equipped to playing a free game, you know? So it's that type of thinking that seems subtle. It seems like a normal article, but it filters through a mentality of the piece. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And you've got to look at who owns the publication, you know? Uh, I keep going back to the dispatch in 2014. I remember when I was there, it was the whole Oscar Pistorius um, saga. And the whole newsroom sort of gravitates to who is the editor, you know? So the opinion of the editor shifts the whole mindset of the news. So if someone who has a particular mindset of an old, middle-aged, let's say, white person who doesn't understand how uh, the climate is, right now in terms of Black Lives Matter, you know, and thinks it's just a defensive mechanism. If mm. they own newspaper publications, the journalists are going to feed into what he's asking them to do. And then through writing, that's what's going to be our mentality as people. If mm. you don't have the, the correct mindset to, to, you know, sort of analyze everything for yourself and make your own decisions, informed decisions. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting what you said there because that definitely does filter down, I'd say down the pipeline, maybe into university and schools, because there are a lot of, um, you know, if we take, for instance, rugby players who mm-hmm. come up, let's say come up from primary school, go to the college and they're, they're playing fly half. And then when they get there, now they, they should move to wing or, or yeah. this position or that position. You can look at, um, Lungelo as well, you know, playing. Yeah, I was about to say that actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so for those who are listening who don't know, it's a, a rugby player who was playing flower for majority of his high school career. And mm-hmm. as he got to um, a university, he got shifted to, to wing. And he was pretty good at wing, but you could yeah, see yeah. that it wasn't really his natural position. And there's so much yeah. around... Uh, that narrative that goes around, if you look at European football, the narrative is that their black defenders are, you know, fast and make these reckless challenges mm. and, mm. you know, but their technical ability is not that good and their mental ability is mm. not that great. Look at black keepers. How many top level black keepers okay. can you name? Or Nana and Mendy. So it definitely yeah, forces just on that. Sorry, just to cut you, when you make that reference into other sports, it's actually crazy when you see the comparisons to black flowers in rugby and black quarterbacks in America. You know what I'm saying? In American yeah. football, because it's the same type of narrative. They said, I remember there's a guy, um, I can't believe I forgot his name now when it matters, but he was, he was like one of the first big superstars, black um, quarterbacks. And for like, half of his career, the debate was always that is he not better suited to a different position because of all the other attributes he has. Similar to how you would say is a player like uh, Damien Valimsa not better suited to other positions because he's got different attributes, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. it's just a matter of 
boxing a lot of, of people and stereotyping and saying, okay, since black people usually have these types of athletic abilities and qualities and attributes, they can only play those certain positions and they don't want to open up those positions usually reserved for a certain demographic and to be played in a different way to evolve the game, you know what I'm saying? So it's just interesting to see the dynamics between Flowers and rugby and American fullback, uh, American football um, uh, quarterbacks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And sort of as you mentioned there, um, you know, I know you're very vocal about, you know, South Africa as a, uh, in quotes, a rainbow nation. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, looking, you could look at the top level on the surface of the, you know, the Springboks, the Pro Tiers. Uh, Bafana, they are very diverse teams. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, but lower down, I don't think it's, you know, as diverse as people think. Yeah. Do you think as uh, media, that is not covered enough? Because if you look at uh, the transformation targets, you know, on a surface level, yeah. it looks good, but I don't think lower down the pipeline, there's enough care given to black players like if you look at as you mentioned Similani for example who was I think a great player at Jeppe and you know you get to you come to the big time and all of a sudden it's is his attitude correct is it is it this so do you think there is enough care for these type of players um, within the media because I mean sorry to to go on but you can take an example of uh, Andre Pollard who's South Africa's um, fly half and yeah. you know the criticism he he gets or lack of criticism you know it's it's good and i don't hate that because you know you're taking care of this guy but it's not an equal spread um across the bread if you'd like you know you can't yeah. you can't give this player certain care and lungi this sort of treatment and a young football player this sort of treatment so do you think yeah. there needs to be more done in that aspect Hundred um, percent, and we'll start with with the lack of coverage. I remember not too long ago there's a certain rugby union, you know, um, up in the north, and um, they released the team for next year, and they only had one black player in the under twenty squad of about forty five players or something like that, and that flew right under the radar, and you know nothing was said about that because it has just been accepted as a norm that it's the cult of that particular union to have a predominant number of this type of, uh, of ethnicity and the others are likely to be there, you know. So that was not spoken about and that kills, you know, the whole notion of, you know, um, diversity. At a, and they always say that it should start at grassroots level. Mind you, under 20 is already late. That's not grassroots anymore. That's very close to first team, yeah. you know what I'm saying? And it's still not even picking that up. That, no, no, no. There's one black player and then maybe two or three additional players of color around him, you know, and no one picked that up. Till this day, I haven't seen any hurrah about that. And you mentioned yeah. a player like Andre Pollard, who the media, you know, allows to make mistakes, you know, and, 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 and will give a different narrative. For example, when you look at a player like Elton Yanji, if he doesn't have the best of games in the spring of jersey, it's a totally different narrative. He's not ready, he shouldn't be there. It's a level too high for him and all of that. And looking at players as well, like uh, when you're saying younger players, you know, who were good at high school and didn't make it, you know, 
there's a hard day there as well. Um, in this hard day there as well. Who, who, yeah. Who's just spiral, sort of being made to spiral out of control, and and, and the media seem to 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 enjoy the controversy around. You know, there was no guidance. They saw headlines from it. You know, mm. and and that's the nature of the media, to be honest with you. But it has to be consistent. You know, I understand that it is trying to get readers so the headline hits. But be consistent. If you're going to penalize um, the character of a young black player coming up, if a young white player makes the same mistakes, please let it be consistency. You know, if Andre Pollard is making his mistakes and is being allowed, then you know, let another player in the same bracket as Andre Pollard, different ethnicity player of color, make the same mistakes and not be crucified like it's the end of the world for him. Yeah. And it's just a narrative of how they. Um, I recently also saw. Sorry to go on, but I recently saw how at the in a in a game where the Springbok Green versus Gold, you know, it was a all round scrappy game. I think everybody who watched can can agree on that. But there was so much scrutiny placed on Damien Vilimsa alone, you know. Yeah. Um, and they made it seem as if he can't crack it at any level, and they're making cases for him to just shift and leave ten all together. And then the next day, they're promoting a young kid who only had a cameo appearance there, and they're <laughs> yeah. treating him like this big thing, you know. So I'm like, are they pushing a certain narrative? And I think I've seen too much of that to say that's a coincidence, you know what I'm saying? So the media yeah. does play a big role, uh, either in picking up and writing about that or the manner in which they write about that, you know. So, yeah, I think the media does let down young talent in the country. And... Uh, there's a lot that can be done better there. And I think for me, one way to quell that is to make uh, the demographics and media rooms more diverse. You know what I'm saying? Because you then get different perspectives, you know? Yeah. And then people who can maybe speak to the players of color, maybe if, if that that's the problem, they don't really get a chance to speak to them, the other journalists, so they just go ahead and write what they can. Maybe journalists of color who understand where that guy is coming from, understand the background, who understand everything, can get a different picture painted for the public to see the full spectrum and not just the 40, 80 minutes he plays on the field that doesn't work out, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, yeah. That's, that's just my take on that. Yeah, and I think what you mentioned earlier with it, with uh, the grassroots, um, you know, has starts at grassroots. And I think about myself in a way, as I grew up in King Williamstown, and for those who don't know, it's a predominantly black town. And, you know, I think back to rugby in my cricket days, uh, it was predominantly black players in my team. My flaff was was colored, the centers were black, you know, I was playing fullback. And these were, you know, quality, quality players. You look um, higher up and Andile Joe and Foxy and all these players were really good players. And, you know, going to Salborne after that, it was, you know, kind of the same, but a bit more diverse and there was more, um, you know, different ethnic, ethnic groups in the school. But it was still, you know, the same in terms of, you know, there wasn't any stereotype around certain positions. From what I saw, you might have a different opinion to that because you were there until late. And then, you know, coming to Pretoria and, you know, saying, hey, um, I'm a fly half. And you know, getting these funny looks. Just a different, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they know they've already penciled you in as a wing. Yeah, all. Yeah, I was a bit tall, so they're like, uh, "Can't you play flank?" 
I'm like, oh wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So definitely starts there, but as you know, how do you think we can go about changing that narrative, and not just from a media point of view, but mm-hmm. you know, I as well, you know, I I started coaching before the pandemic. Um, this year I was coaching at my old school, and you know in my eyes, I didn't really, you know, I don't see it in, you know, the perspective of maybe some of my coaches saw me as no, I can't have yeah. a black laugh, but if I can see a black player can, you know, pass the ball well, the and he has a, yeah, he can do the job. You know, it's not a case of me being like, ah, you know, maybe I should put him at 15 or so-and-so. So how do you think, yeah. Do you think we just need, cause it is a stagnant, you know, I guess, trend of coaches in the higher level, but, you know, just at all levels, yeah. do you think we need a slow flushing out of younger coaches who share this perspective of, you know, the younger South African and not obviously not all of them are these free thinkers who don't see, who don't have these stereotypes, but it's the stop. It's still the same premise of, you know, flushing out the older coaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and with this one, it's actually interesting. I'll go back to, to my old school, Stolman College, you know, and, um, and, and it's not even a criticism of Stolman College because for many a year it worked, you know. So they had the same first team and second team coaches alternating for about, I don't know if it's 20 or 30 years, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Nobody else, I mean, other younger coaches even left Stolman seeking opportunities, you know, um, because they saw that that was never going to change. But that worked for Stolman College, you know. But as soon as they then changed and started introducing younger coaches, for example, the coach P, our Piero yeah. was now the assistant and the 21 coach at Charles, they still got very good results. You know, this was a different coach from a different era, different mindset of playing rugby. All of a sudden, everything looked exciting and they were still getting Southern college-like results. Different type of personnel playing in those positions where they're not stereotyped to be players of, you know, Black Blahoff in 2015 and before they have been Lungel, of course, in 2013. So like you said, as someone, you do get your choice at positions no matter what your demographic is. But then I think with the whole changing of the narrative, it, it can, I look at it in two ways. One, it's either it will naturally happen by itself as the old brigade slowly falls away like it did in Selborne, where coaches retire and naturally a new breed of young coaches with new ideas who watch rugby at a modern level and have trained as junior coaches, trained in modern rugby techniques, go up to senior levels, then that sort of filters from grassroots to the top. Or either then we just need to push more players or coaches of color, you know, who see things out the box, you know, to get into those positions where they can affect the rugby mentality of the country. And I'm not saying push coaches of color all the way so they can replace all the other coaches. Yeah. Let's just have an equilibrium. So we know in South Africa, we've got different styles of coaching. We're diverse as our demographics are. Our coaching reflects that. And our style of playing selections also reflect that. So we have different options at the Springbok level, you know? Yeah. If young players, like maybe your young Vilimses, are backed at 10 all the way up, then all of a sudden we have a different option from a Pollard game plan, you know? at Springbok level. And we still have that polar game plan because that's naturally the right culture of South Africa, you know. So I think it's just a matter of balancing out the coaching uh, minds at a, at a youth level and helping them through that. 
And that's why I say young coaches like Dwakengosi, Piro Nomlomo, even Joey Mongalo, they have, they, their progress, also Fandilistik is already further up, you know, so maybe he's leading the whole pack. But those guys, their progression is going to be so pivotal to the mindset and, and the change of South, how South Africans see right now. What styles are, are, are effective for South Africans and accepted for South Africans? How they progress into the system, how they get accepted into these unions, and how they get backed, you know, could see a whole change of narrative for, for Black players and just rugby in general for South Africa. You know, yeah. so I, I, I sort of see them as catalysts for that if they're given the chance. So I'm just waiting with bait and breath to see how far they're allowed to go in the system. Yeah. And, you know, touching, just to finish up on, you know, European landscape in football sure. and just to celebrate, you know, I think there's been a very uh, escalated surge of black footballers, um, you know, in Europe. Some yeah, of the best, yeah, yeah. Well, the most renowned footballers coming through, like the Masons, the Kamavingas, um, mm-hmm. are black players. Um, just to celebrate those players. Who are some of uh, you know the the shining lights for you? I know you're an avid Manchester United supporter, but you know you've yeah. got Marcus Marcus Rashford, sorry, Mason Greenwood. Who you know you know is the apple of your eye? I guess. Yeah, um, obviously, I, I like the look of those two players. I've seen a lot of of Marcus Rashford. I think he hasn't been um, as consistent, but now I think he's slowly starting to to from last season onwards before he got injured to how we're starting to kick on now maybe he's going to become the player we were hoping he would be i think mason greenwood he was on the right track you know before all the media frenzy and now everyone is rushing to uh to sort of get the kid i don't understand why that uh, the uk media would do that to one of their own and then turn around and say you know they can't win world cup when they're destroying such good talent you know mentally but then, you know, looking across the spectrum, young players like Reese James, I've been impressed with him at Chelsea. Yeah. I think he's a fantastic young black player there. Um, and yeah, um, I think those are all, all my top, top players. But I've also liked the look of um, the youngster, uh, Tariq Lamptey, you know, at, at yeah. Brighton as well. Guy Osaka at, at Arsenal, Kentia as well. I think they've always had a good core of young black players given the chance then, just young players in general, you know, so I think those are my players, you know. Yeah, and just lastly, just to bring it home, I think this is a really important, you know, narrative or, you know, progression that South Africa needs to take, obviously, you know, with um, this weekend's Kosafa win. As, you know, um, a journalist, do you think there is enough exposure for women's football in South Africa. And I've spoken to a lot of people this week regarding grassroots level initiatives in women's football. But, you know, is there enough exposure? Our first professional league was what, last year? Do you think oh, there's yeah. yeah enough done for women in South Africa? Um, no, I think we're definitely letting them down. Um, and I've felt like that for, for years, actually. Um, myself as a young journalist as well, I had a conversation with my father not too long ago and I told him that I'm not doing enough on that front. And he also raised that. 
So we in any sport, not just I know crossbreed football, um, but any sport, you know, uh, with regards to it. And that's for me as a journalist on my personal side, it's something I have actively, you know, started to try and change. There's a mm. pro tiers uh, uh, woman player, you know, that I'm trying to get in contact with, you know, and um, I've already interviewed a Springbok woman player. And, you know, I'm trying to look into the banana banana spectrum as well. So I think we need to acknowledge first and foremost that, yes, we are giving them short changes during this in terms of exposure and then act on that. Because what you're saying is correct. There just isn't enough exposure, you know. And if you look at the way Banyana Banyana plays, you know, they hardly ever let the country down. You know, we can't fault their efforts even when they do lose, you know what I'm saying? And yeah. they really do bring joy. But at the same time, for me, one person actually raised this. I remember when Banyana Banyana came home from a tournament after the World Cup last year when they performed admirably well, you know, um, even though results didn't always go their way. And then yeah. people were saying that, why does it, the Banyana Banyana team get equal pay or just just equal type of support. And then someone raised that it's sometimes it's even the males that are trying to support them. You know, we are the women supporters who would fill up the stadium, you know, for the for the women's league, you know. Mm. So it starts there as well, you know, if they can, you know, if uh, women around the country can start to immerse themselves more women. I know there are quite a few even on Twitter that follow me, you know, very, very um in the know in terms of sports, you know, sports, sports fanatics, you know, brilliant sports knowledge. So even more, if they can get into the sporting world, you know, start to pick teams in the, in the South African Women's League, you know, start to show interest in sports for women, you know, that's how you build, you know, that, you know, that's how you build an interest, you know, uh, in yeah. the sport, you know, you push up your own sport, you know, and we will always try our best from our side. But yeah, just in general, there isn't enough being done. And there's not, there should be more done by media, and there should be enough more done by administrators to make sure that they get what they deserve. Yeah, and it's just this morning I was sort of watching, just browsing through the TV, and I um, saw on ESPN there was a NCAA women's uh, football game, which is yeah. I think yeah the University League in America, and which is extremely professional and. You know, there were people in the stands and I just thought to myself, like, the level of the university football is, and I mean in terms of the production and the broadcasting exposure, is at a different level to what we have for our professional, you know, women's league. It's just, yeah, I I hope I really... I mean, if, if if on the women's side, you know, they start getting... I'm not saying exactly the same coverage as the Super DSP with Super Sport. At, at the same time, I don't understand why they can't, you know. Exactly. But I'm saying if they can just be taken seriously from that perspective, then they will feel important. You know what I'm saying? If yeah. they're getting that coverage, you know, then they can start to feel important. And then the more other young women growing up start to see that, you know, sport playing on TV, more exposure, you know. And then they yeah. will want they will aspire to play for Banyana Banyana. They will aspire to be a part of one of these women's soccer league teams, maybe Sundowns women, you know, Celtics women, you know. They will pick teams like we did when we were kids, you know, and they will aspire like we aspired when we were kids, you know. So I think broadcasters as well need to come to the party because the women's league only plays maybe on, 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 
on Sunday at, on SABC One, and and that's that. You know, you, after that, you just hear about the results, and you hardly even see the highlights. So the exposure yeah. is not enough. You know, at the same time, so broadcasters, media writers, you know, um, we all have a role to play. You know, and hopefully we all come to the party and and we give our women in sport what they deserve, man, because they're pushing so hard. Cricket, you know, the Proteus women, they're doing well. Um, and, you know, it's just time for us, you know, to, to push them, to back them, to make them feel important. So they can yeah. be training out these type of results and inspiring a new generation as well. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't put it any better right there. But, you know, thank you for your time. Um, it's been a great chat. You know, I've, I hope the young journalists who are listening, you know, take a lot of value from what you have to say and in terms of reaching out and taking and grabbing your chance or creating your own opportunities and, you know, taking value in, you know, upliftment of women in sports and the young players, you know, having more initiatives in grassroots level to change that perspective as well as, you know, uh, representation in the media room. So it was a really great chat and thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, man. Let me just say thank you to you for, for thinking of me uh, and inviting me onto this platform. Um, really, really honored uh, to, to just be, you know, thought of as, as a person who can add something of value to the conversation, man. And I appreciate that so much. Thank you. And no problem. Cheers. All right, thank you.